This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Friday, March 18th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday on this show, I talked about Joe Biden talking about war crimes. He said he thought Putin was a war criminal. And today, the big newspapers all covered this in a way that at first surprised me. The New York Times putting on its cover... Biden makes it personal by use of war criminal. The estimable David Sanger writing of Biden, his remarks underscored how personal condemnation has become policy as Mr. Biden and his top aides frame Mr. Putin as a pariah, an indiscriminate killer who should be standing trial at The Hague. Should be, but won't be, as was my case that I made on Thursday. The LA Times, big banner headline, U.S. to pursue war crime case, They quote Anthony Blinken, as does the New York Times, saying that they think Putin is a war criminal. And then the LA Times also said those attacks, Putin's attacks, have led the State Department to begin a legal process to document potential war crimes against Russia, noting that any formal accusation would probably be brought before the International Criminal Court at The Hague. An accusation, yes, but the accused, almost certainly not. This use of the phrase war crime, this designation of war crimes or war criminal, It seems to be purely rhetorical. It has no actual effect, no practical effect. A prosecution can't actually be brought. And to the Times credit, they point out that once you start calling people war criminals, you lose some of your options and maneuverability. So I have to say that the huge banner headline in the LA Times, US to pursue war crime case, which was just used as an inducement to a very fine and serviceable story about all the things that Russia did wrong in the last 24 hours, it doesn't change what I've been saying or thinking, that I don't really understand the point of calling the guy a war criminal. It's not like the entire Western world didn't know that he was committing war crimes, and it's not like you needed to point it out using a legal term that has no actual legal practicality in this matter. Hey, maybe they're smarter than I am. Then again, I hope they're smarter than I am. On the show today, I spiel about Sergei Lavrov and his way of speaking and defending Russia as never having done anything wrong. You won't believe, oh yes you will, who he gives credit to in the West for telling the story straight. But first, you know, I could populate the gist with all my favorite forms of media, but what I'd like to do is point to movies, 
TV shows, novels that really say something special, maybe something about the zeitgeist. And Search Party is such a show. Not only do I like the show and think it's funny and admire the actors, but I think it says something. I think it might be the first large-scale attempt to successfully depict a different type of person, generational, but also psychological. The plot of Search Party is... Chantal goes missing, and some of her old colleagues, not even friends, but maybe associates, find meaning in searching for Chantal. They are Dory, the main character, played by Alia Shawkat, Portia, Elliot, and Drew. And these are all people who are both above it all, but like I said, desperately searching for meaning in their lives. And over the show's five seasons on HBO and TBS, we go along with them as their search for meaning takes darker and darker turns. The creators of Search Party, Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers, are on next. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers are the co-creators, executive producers, head writers, basically everything of Search Party. You may also know them as Fucking Idiot 2 and 1, respectively, in their 2014 film, Fort Tilden. Search Party started out on TBS, flipped to HBO Max, where it it can be found uh, available for streaming and binging. I recommend you do so. The reason I wanted to talk to Bliss and Rogers, Rogers and Bliss, is because I think they did something unique. I mean, I love the show, but I think the show acts as a little bit like an act of sociology. Let's talk about it. Uh, Guys, thanks so very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. So here is my big fascination with the show, beyond the humor and the plot. I think in terms of character, you put your finger on something I hadn't seen before. It's not that these characters, your main four characters, we've never seen them in other TV shows or works of art, but we often see them in isolation and reflected against someone who's heroic or someone who the audience is maybe meant to, quote, identify more through. And if we talk about their main traits, I mean, you tell me what you think they are, but I wrote down narcissism, entitlement, and delusion. There's a constellation of other traits around that. It's the first time I really saw or spent a lot of time with a work of art where that was just taken as the de facto way that people navigate through the world. Do you think I'm making too much of a big deal about this? No, I think that's so true. I I don't think I had thought of it necessarily as that, but I do think you know, it seems like there's two kinds of people when it comes to like who our audience is. It's like people who who get the show or people who don't. And I think that well, that you, second part wouldn't be your audience then, would it? No, it would just be people. <laughs> we would, you know, the your the thirst for an audience is insatiable. You know, yes. it's not until everyone in the world watches it that I'll be satisfied. So um, there's soon to be an audience. 
Uh, but I think you either feel like you understand the sensibility and the point of view of the show in the sense that it's saying it's it's taking for granted that people are equipped enough to self-inspect and have enough self-awareness that they understand that everyone has <laughs> complexity <laughs> and a lot of art doesn't cater to that point of view. Um, and a lot of people don't want to think about things that way. Yeah, I think that the characters have a certain sort of self-awareness, which is they're they're pretty aware of their emotions or other people's emotions. So they'll do things like they'll soothe each other or they'll try to buck up each other's spirits. But in terms of actual actions, which I was raised to think are the important things, they almost always come up short. And uh, I would also say oftentimes act quite unethically, even if they're quote unquote kind about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I almost think that they subconsciously are completely aware of everything that they're doing. But like you said, their actions um, betray that from of them. And um, that's why they're able to uh, hold two things to, at the same time of being like, oh, I know that this is wrong and therefore I'm going to act this way to make up for the thing that's wrong. You know, like it's not it's kind of a puzzle. But um, yeah, I think that they uh, are acting in the way that humans, human behavior <laughs> um, tends to unfold in that way. Well, they do. And let's put a little more meat on the bone for people who haven't seen it. Dory, uh, played by Alia Shawkat, is the main character. She goes through a lot of changes, but the show pretty much starts off as her looking at a poster of a missing girl and saying to herself, I think I know that girl. She does. And then she uses the quest to find that missing girl, quote unquote, missing girl. She uses that quest as a voyage of self-discovery, uh, ropes her other friends into it. An incredibly narcissistic act that they keep telling themselves, is it narcissistic? Um, I don't know if that's reflective of, you know, human nature, as you were saying, Sarah Violet, or if it's reflective of a certain uh, milieu, a certain generation. What do you think? I think every generation is narcissistic. I think every human being is narcissistic. Every Everyone is everything, first of all. Um, like, we exist on every spectrum, whether or not we admit it. Um, but, you know, I think that the qualities that maybe the millennial or even Gen Z generations have is the ability to, the vocabulary handed to them to be able to express the ins and outs of their point of view. And so I think that the show kind of builds off of the amount of awareness that our generation has had about themselves and ultimately it's we live in a in a public space like america is a performative country capitalism it relies on people declaring you know a persona in order to navigate it and so there's no way to transcend that and we you know we have to admit that <laughs> that narcissism is intrinsically enmeshed with every other single aspect of our existence but that the show doesn't damn that because it's important to just take note and take stock of everything you're made up of um the show is about discovering yourself you know it's about someone who starts off in the dark about who they are and as the show revealed itself to us as we kept on writing we realized that it was a story about one person's like big quest for self-actualization through the darkest and most extreme and colorful means right 
Well, but if season five never happened, which is from what I understand of reading about it, it could have ended uh, with season four. Would it would you be describing the show that way today? I think so, but I think that um, what season, if you haven't seen the show, uh, there's no way to talk about it without a bunch of spoilers. Uh. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think we should go <laughs> up until the point of, you know, the last few okay. episodes of the show. Anyway, it's been out since what, I like know, 2016, know, 2017? Come on, we're spoiling <laughs> things that happened during the Obama administration, people. Yeah, I mean, she. so the cliffhanger <laughs> of the end of season four is that um, she dies and she ends up having a near-death experience. But this character, Dory, is somebody who starts off like, uh, you know, a, sort of the wounded victim of her friend group who are all a bunch of fast-talking, you know, hipsters. And... Then there's, you know, there's a murder, there's a cover up and every season changes genres. And then by the time you get to season four, she's revealed that she's actually the darkest and most narcissistic of all of her friends and that that was always what was inside of her. So what season five was, was an opportunity to show what it's like to be on the other side of a near death experience, which, of course, is like metaphorically a stand in of like, you know, ego death, you know, essentially, because she's gone through all these things. She's gone to the limits and then she reinvents herself. And it's about being on the other side of reinvention, being on the other side of um, seeing everything that you're made of and not being able to make peace with it and giving in. And so season five, I'm glad it happened. We're glad it happened. Like we're able to like finish, you know, we're able to finish off like a five act structure that we never knew we were setting out to do. (laughs) I also heard, Charles, you say this in an interview talking about the characters and their narcissism and uh, the, the traits that they embody. You said that uh, there were a certain set of millennial traits and you think that the world just caught up to that. In other words, we don't say, oh, that's so millennial. We just say, oh, that's people in the world. Um, do you think Do you think that's just a function of demographics? You know, more millennials became more prominent in society, became adults, became people like you who could author works that show millennials or is it something else do you think you know non-millennials may be changed well i think that like once you hit 30 it's kind of all the same age after that so um (laughs) you know i think that there's like essentially i feel like when we first made our feature Fort Tilden, it felt like we had all these hot takes about millennials that felt like new and fresh. And now talking about it, it's like, oh, we're just talking about adults. We're just talking about mainstream America at this point. And I think that like the homogenization of all the technology and all the streaming platforms and all the social media, I mean, you know, everyone's on Instagram pursuing the same elusive nothing, you know, like, so we're all kind of in the same boat at this point. Um, I think the traits that are specific to millennials uh, serve the greater like system of money making. And now we're all kind of in the same quicksand together. I think also like for some reason, society is always obsessed with like what are the kids in the in their 20s doing (laughs) you know like and um that becomes whatever it is that they're doing becomes their you know thing and once you sort of graduate from the the uh that which is of the now into like adulthood then it, it just doesn't you know you're you're not as obsessed with like who am I going to be and like how am I going to express who I am and um you just start kind of getting into the groove of like living and um that 
I think that's what that obsession with whatever generation is at whatever time comes from. But these characters uh, in the show, I guess they started out, how old were they maybe when they started out? Mid-20s? Yeah, and mid-20s. Ended up yeah like 25. Like 20 yeah. to 30? Yeah, tw- yeah. yeah, so 25 to 30. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had, they didn't have any of that stuff figured out. Like, they didn't really become ad- what we would call adults, maybe until late in the show, some of them got a corporate gig selling apps or something. Yeah, definitely. But they all have existed. I mean, God, I mean, I don't want to jump around too much, but like, I've just been thinking about how like the whole world looks the same now. Like every city has the same like uh, hipster Szechuan place. Like everything is everyone's got the same stuff. Everyone's wearing the same things. And, you know, whether or not you these characters, you know, already existed in that world. And now the whole world exists in that world. And so everywhere is Brooklyn. And I don't know what I'm saying exactly about millennials, but I do know that the world has also transformed into this like sort of like hyper capitalistic place that is it has the same patina and facade everywhere. So you work with non-millennials, Michael Showalter from, I would say, from the state, you might say, from from uh, Stella or some other or Wet Hot American Summer, which I know you worked on. He he uh, directed uh, a bunch of these. Right. And he was your professor when you check in. And of course, you know, you have family members who are older um, to test the thesis. The world has taken on these millennial traits. When you check in with these people of different generations, do they agree with that thesis? Do they say, oh, you're just talking about humans or you're talking about a certain set of humans that maybe aren't the set that uh, I identify with as humans in America in 2022? I remember Showalter talking about Charles and my point of view as always being like, you guys see the world as so like dark and mean <laughs> like that the that everyone is like so, um, you know, there's not our storytelling was more on the side of trying to tap into like a reality than having like the hero at the center of of something that was a little bit more 90s palatable, you know, and I see like uh, people of other people, uh, millennials, I guess, I think generally, not all of them, but you know, some, some millennials like, you know, like our show and then people of other generations also like our show, but see it in a like, whoa, that's so different. And then there's also like, you know, the people who are like, why would I want to watch someone act this way? You know, like that, that it's distasteful to them and they want to see the version, the best version of a character (laughs) rather than um, unveiling the, the, you know, what's that phrase, the turn of phrase, the underbelly or whatever. <laughs> I'm I'm really bad at turn of <laughs> phrases. I mean, I think that maybe what it's about is like every generation, like every generation is wounded or like everyone is wounded, but then every generation like reacts to that wound differently. And w- when I think about like Gen X, that, I mean, just a super stereotype, it's like, cigarette smoking and being like no that sucks like the world sucks like don't sell out like like ugh, yuck dumb and then like our generation is i guess more uh you know self-obsessed and also is like wait the world started without me it's not fair 
Um, and then I guess when you get to Gen Z, the, the stereotype is basically like the world should be better and, um, we're the only people that have the keys to that. Why don't you see that? Um, so I think that like the millennial generation is kind of in between those two points of view. And there's a lot of like internal struggle about like what the, how to center yourself in a narrative that's in between those two points of view. All right. I'm going to do a little more lightning round random questions that I had since I have you and I wondered. Did you have a talk with John Early after he starred in After Party about being in a different party <laughs> themed and named premium table series? We sure there did. Are <laughs> many, many shows with the word party in them today. Let's just that say are, that. that. There's certainly four somehow, shows with the word party in them. That are somehow <laughs> mysteries. Mysteries. But how many have how many have main cast members from your show? Um I, they probably all do. And they probably all have like four hundred million more dollars than we ever did. <laughs> Let go in a second. I want to ask about the characters' names. Dory, Seif, Drew Gardner, Elliot Goss, Portia Davenport. Where'd those last names come from? <laughs> um, well, those are probably the most normal names in the whole world of the show. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but also clearance issues yeah. make you have to <laughs> oh. choose like three different options. <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, Davenport for Portia Davenport, that's kind of vampy, love Bodhi. It has kind of actress vibes, you know, goss, gossip, uh, you know, um, Drew Gardner. I, y- you could get fancy and say that it, um, that means something more than it does. But, it, you know, it just feels feels right. It feels right for all of them. Mm-hmm. And then um, Seif is an Arab last name that's pretty common. And it just sounded cute with Dory. It was like Dory Seif. <laughs> it's a cute name. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys working on next we are in development for of a feature film called monster which is going to be a horror comedy about a girl who moves to la and becomes the personal assistant to an a-list actress who may or may not be an actual monster um so it's you know it's a real monster movie and um yeah we're 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 we've got a script we're taking it out and uh casting it packaging it but um you know it'll it'll expand on a lot of the same themes and that you know our work always does so (laughs) are you gonna do you hope to direct that one too yeah yeah we're gonna direct it that's good co-directors co-producers co-creators search party is the show it's on hbo max started off on tbs you don't even need to know that it's entirely on hbo max i do recommend you check it out it's um really was one of the highlights of my pandemic and so many to choose from charles sarah violet thank you guys so much thank you thank you This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. 
And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, went on TV today and admitted it. He admitted all of it. Russia is an aggressor. Uh, Russia is murdering uh, civilians. Uh, Russia is uh, abusing uh, sports and so on and so forth. Well, the doping thing, that's been pushed down on the most clicked bar on the right. But yeah, I mean, it's true. Thank you. Thank you, sir, guy. Now, I got to fear for your safety. Uh, some tips don't walk in public or eat soup. What? Oh, oh, hold on. I'm being told his full comments there were that CNN is saying overly simplistic things like Russia is the aggressor, we committed war crimes, etc. Lavrov was being genuine, however, when he criticized a popular app among teens. When they, when they uh, concentrate on uh, TikTok and other uh, resources like this and other platforms, and when they target kids because TikTok is about uh, young boys and girls, uh, I believe this is uh, an attempt to brainwash them for the rest of their life. And it has been going on for years now. We all know this. You tick, you talk, you don't stop. Doggy Fresh says it. Color me bad, says it on the occasions when they wish to sex you up. We don't say this. The color revolutions that are bad, says this. Your Kesha, your decadent young woman, she has dollar sign at center of her persona. She is one who wants you to tick, talk, blow speakers up. Is a reference to the head of parliament and your Nancy Pelosi. I do not want to blow the speakers up. She does. We get blamed for all the blowing of the things up. I love the, I love the Sergei Lavrov voice. I don't even know if it's that accurate. It's just an ambient for the soul, really. It's tempting. But of all the remarks, the one that got the most play was this statement about the one Western network that Lavrov does give credit to. Uh, if you take the United States, only Fox News is trying to present some alternative uh, point of view. The brass at Fox has got to be real proud of that, don't you think? Ingram and Tucker getting the Sergei Lavrov shout out, well, croak out. What's left to say? Oh, maybe just one more impression. You know what is worse than the TikTok? It is the Minecraft as major exporter of nickel and iron ore. We do not know how you come up with smacking the wood with a little stick to get the iron ore. Is much more complex. Shows the West ignores complexities. Except for Tucker, he's good. 
Lavrov went on to critique Russia's non-inclusion in an international free speech conference, and he took particular aim at the German tabloid Bild for publishing an article in early February alleging that, get this, Russia was planning a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Unclear what exactly Lavrov's problem was with that Bild article. Of course, I have to admit that I briefly took a nap from the beginning of his answer to the end. Now, the only reason I was able to see this bit of propaganda is that some Americans monitor these things and they pull the cuts and put them on Twitter. Because the interview, the venue was Russia Today, the state-sanctioned and more or less owned broadcaster. Now, we all know that RTs do not normally equal endorsements, but in the case of RTs interviewing Sergei Lavrov, they definitely do. In fact, it's a condition of their broadcasting. Overall, to see this propaganda is to realize just how sad the Russian attempt to control the narrative has been. They can censor and punish outlets domestically and have huge forays of flag waving. That works, I guess, to their domestic audience. But in America, their tactics have no purchase. And the only way to be exposed to such lies is a bootleg Twitter feed or also by far the most watched show on cable news. There is that too. Tucker, that guy, he gets it. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the foreign minister of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, visit AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>